Welcome to The Land of Desire, a podcast exploring the weird, wacky, and wonderful history of France. I'm Diana, and today, the day I'm launching my podcast, is France's greatest national celebration. Here in the United States, we know today, if we know it at all, being Americans, as Bastille Day. But if you're actually at home in France, July 14th is known as La Fête Nationale. It's the French equivalent of the 4th of July, and the celebrations are pretty similar. Always fireworks, usually a picnic, uh, very often a military parade or even a pancake supper cooked by local firemen. It's very cute. These days, Bastille Day is seen as a launchpad for the French Revolution, celebrating the moment that sparked the overthrow of a king, the overthrow of an entire system of government, and ultimately ushering in modern France and the modern republic. But hundreds of years ago, Bastille Day was a symbol of violent revolution. It was chaos. It was riots in the streets. It was everyday people taking up arms against anyone they thought was part of the establishment, and very often against people who weren't actually part of that establishment at all. Most people know the story of Bastille Day and how it celebrates the day when a mob of angry peasants stormed a royal prison to free the king's prisoners and declare war on the oppressive monarchy. But do you know how the whole thing got started? Because today, I'm making the case that the entire French Revolution, based as it was on the vast gulf between the rich and poor, especially when it came to securing food for you and your loved ones, your children, all of this can actually be traced back to a catastrophic natural disaster. A disaster which happened thousands of miles away in a mysterious land most Parisians had never even heard of. Today, we're going to learn the story of the revolution and the volcano. On the morning of July 12, 1789, the bakers of Paris were nervous. It was a hot summer morning. And as the bakers set up their stalls in the marketplace, they were surrounded on both sides by a giant crowd. The bakers weren't sure who was scarier. On their left were a bunch of foreign soldiers. Honestly, they were just scared teenagers holding their rifles and looking really overwhelmed. On their right were a bunch of customers, exhausted from heat and hunger and not looking very friendly. The bakers had sold to the same people their whole lives. The folks that were surrounding them right now were their neighbors. But right now, these bakers just wanted to sell their bread, hurry home, and lock their doors and wait for the craziness to blow over. Because over the last year, bad droughts and bad harvests had driven the price of bread sky high. Bread was everything back then, especially when you weren't getting enough of it. 
Most people in France in 1789 lived on bread, up to two pounds per day if you were lucky. Breakfast? Bread. Lunch? Bread. Dinner? Bread. Back then, wealthy nobles and merchants were the only folks in town who could get their hands on meat and fish. If you were a farmer, and back then you were probably a farmer, maybe you were lucky enough to afford some vegetable seeds. If you planted the seeds, you would pray that the local lord's pigeons don't eat the seeds. If the seeds somehow sprouted, you would pray that the local lord's deer don't trample all the sprouts. And if those sprouts somehow manage to grow into vegetables, you pray that the local lord's rabbits don't eat the vegetables. Because if they do, you aren't allowed to touch those rabbits or those pigeons or those deer. So for most folks, there was no meat, no fish, and probably no vegetables. In 1789, this was simply the way it was and had always been. Life wasn't great. But at least there was bread. Until now. As I said, it had been a year of terrible drought and terrible harvests. As the price of bread went up, the people of France went hungry. And they weren't doing so very quietly. Over the past few weeks, it seemed like all of France had descended into chaos. Violence all around the country seemed to be marching into town, and it seemed like everyone was just going mad. In fact, if anyone had been paying close attention, and nobody was paying close attention because they were all really, really hungry, they might have realized that things in France had been going crazy for almost exactly six years. And that's because six years earlier, an extraordinary thing had happened. It happened 1,300 miles away, in a place most Parisians had never visited and had never heard of, probably never would hear of. And yet six years earlier, in an unknown corner of the world, a mysterious disaster launched a decade of chaos. A disaster which would bring the marketplaces of 1789 to the brink of a riot and kick off one of the greatest political upheavals in human history. Across the Atlantic Ocean, in the little-known corner of a little-known village in a little-known country called Iceland, things moved slowly. For the most part, the world didn't really know about Iceland. Denmark used it as a colony, so I guess they were paying attention, but most of the time in Iceland, the world sort of passed you by without taking any notice. But things were about to change. Because on the morning of June 8th, 1783, a dark cloud settled over the sky, so thick that locals couldn't tell whether it was day or night. The weather was calm, but suddenly, at nine o'clock in the morning, the ground opened up like an enormous zipper. The local priest, Reverend John Steingrimson, saw it all. According to him, flames and fire erupted. Great blocks of rocks and pieces of grass were thrown high into the air and in indescribable heights. From time to time, strong thunders, flashes, fountains of sand, lightning, and dense smoke occurred. Earth trembled incessantly. 
How terrible it was to see such signs of an angry God. Now it was time to confess to the Lord. Eight million tons of hydrogen fluoride filled the air, wiping out Iceland's sheep, cows, horses, crops, and people. Birds fell dead out of the sky. All the iron on the island rusted. If the poison air didn't kill you, the lack of food did. And by the time the ground had settled down again, one out of every four people in Iceland was dead. But the volcano wasn't done yet. The poisonous smoke rose up and up and up, all the way into the jet stream, covering the world in a haze. Fog settled over China and floated out to sea where it disrupted the monsoon cycle and it triggered famine throughout India and Egypt and the Inuits of Alaska wrote of a summer that did not come. By the ninth day after the eruption, the cloud reached Norway, scattering ashes on the ground. By the 10th day, Germany watched the sun turn the color of blood. By the 11th day, the cloud reached France. Boats sat still in the water as clouds of poison rolled in. Those unlucky enough to breathe too much of the gas choked to death. Benjamin Franklin, living in Paris at the time, attended lectures on the constant fog. And he was really one of only a handful of educated men who was able to figure out what was going on. For everybody else, it was a summer of inexplicable death and suffering. In at least one village, the local priest got dragged out of bed to perform an exorcism on the murderous heir. Remember that the next time you make fun of the happening. And the only thing worse than a summer of death clouds is a summer that never ends. The toxic clouds lasted until October, but their side effects lingered on even longer. Winters grew colder, harvests failed, and freak storms rolled throughout the French countryside. A few years later, things were really spiraling out of control. The first thing to go was the barley crop, then the oats, then the rye a.k.a. all the things that went into poor people's bread. That summer, a thunderstorm passed through Paris, showering down 16-inch hailstones which killed men in the streets and tore the crops in the fields into shreds. I can just imagine some poor French peasant, very hungry, getting hit in the head with hailstones, you know? Just, right, of course, you know, same mare, different day. If you can believe it, things only got worse from there. The winter of 1788 was really cold. No, really cold. Frozen rivers trapped boats filled with grain, and onlookers could only watch from the shore as their only chance at dinner spoiled and rotted away. Thomas Jefferson, who really chose a terrible time to be America's envoy to France, wrote of a winter of such severe cold as without example. The mercury was at times 50 degrees below freezing. Great fires were kept at all the crossroads around which the people gathered in crowds to avoid perishing with cold. Relief at the arrival of spring in 1789 quickly turned to dread as the air grew hotter and drier, because it turns out that when all that ice melts, you get floods. 
So without any good harvests, French peasants spent the spring of 1789 eating the final crumbs of last year's grain, even though the fall harvest was still months away. So now, the cupboard is finally empty. Bread is getting harder and harder to find. And just like all that toxic volcanic smoke, the bread prices in Paris are going up, up, up. In March, the rumors began trickling into the streets of Paris. First, there were rumors about bread riots in Flanders. Then there were rumors about bread riots in Artois. The truth was, there were bread riots in Flanders and Artois. Meanwhile, as these rumors are making their way into Paris, poor people are realizing that for the first time, not only can they not get meat or fish or vegetables, now they can't even get their daily bread. More rumors start coming in. Maybe there is bread, but maybe the fat little monks are hoarding it and locking it away in their monasteries. Then, a bit more quietly, there are more new rumors coming in. Maybe it's not the monks hoarding the food. Maybe it's the king himself. As these rumors began spreading throughout Paris, so did a new type of person. Soldiers. Every day, it seemed, more and more soldiers assembled on corners, next to flour mills and market stalls, and especially next to bakeries. At first, the Parisians thought it must have been their imagination, or the heat. The king didn't mention any need for soldiers. But no, the gathering armies were real. Every day, more soldiers poured in. Even worse, these soldiers weren't even French. The real French soldiers were all deserting the army because their families back home were starving to death. Instead, the king was importing these new arrivals from Switzerland and, even worse, Germany. Those rumors began turning into speeches. These foreign invaders were standing in between loyal French people and their bread. Now, there were rumors about bread riots in Picardy. Then, there were rumors about bread riots in Normandy. Then, finally, just a few days' ride away from Paris, there were bread riots in Lyon. So, now it's Sunday, the middle of July. The people of Paris were the hungriest and the poorest they had ever been. Back then, the French set aside one day each quarter for paying debts— That was the day you paid rent, you paid off your tab at the bar, and you paid any other money that you owed. Today was the first market day since everybody had been forced to settle their debts, so everyone watched nervously as the bakers set out their bread. I can only imagine everyone sucking in their breath at the same time those bakers wrote their prices on the board. 14 sous for bread. To put that into a little context, the average American worker earns about $170 per day. Imagine going to the store and finding out that a loaf of plain, regular bread costs $154. By law, whatever the bakers didn't sell at the end of the day had to be given away. So the rowdy crowds waited for the sun to set. It was during this time, while everyone waited for nightfall, stomachs growling, 
that a shocking piece of news reached the marketplace. King Louis XVI had fired the finance minister. For most Parisians, the finance minister was the only guy left in power anywhere who seemed to care that the people of France were starving to death. A year earlier, during that summer of freak thunderstorms, the finance minister had used his own personal fortune to buy grain overseas and have it shipped to Paris so the people could eat. At this point, the crowd figured that if King Louis XVI is going to fire the one guy paying attention to the price of bread, he's either evil or a moron. To the relief of the bakers, the rumor was so explosive that the angry mob forgot all about their hunger and left the marketplace to go gather in the streets and march towards the palace. Everyone in the streets headed down to the Tuileries Gardens, about five or 6,000 people in total, until the crowd came up against a wall of those nervous foreign soldiers. No longer standing on the sidewalks or guarding the bakeries, German soldiers now pointed their weapons at the French people, just as those radicals had warned would happen. Eyewitness accounts differ as to what exactly happened, but maybe the more important story is what Parisians thought happened. Because according to the stories in the streets, the German cavalrymen charged their horses and their guns at the Parisians, injuring some but killing others and sending Parisians scattering into the streets. Whether this is an accurate tale is irrelevant. What matters is that that night, Parisians told themselves that the showdown between the elites and the common people was finally here. The people of Paris had no bread, and it is time to prepare for battle. That meant finding guns. When a group of angry citizens and French soldiers pushed their way into the military hospital in search of cannons and muskets, they were too late, the director said. Oh, you wanted weapons? Oh, well, you just missed them. You know, we, we sent ours downtown to the fortress for safekeeping. If the mob wanted to get their hands on any weapons, they were going to need to attack that ancient fortress downtown, the Bastille. Despite our modern-day myths and legends about the Bastille, the fortress was not exactly the towering hellmouth we imagine. The Bastille was usually the spot for troublemakers. Conspirators, Protestants, dangerous writers, scandalous writers, and, of course, juvenile delinquents, whose families begged the king to lock up their lousy kids for their own good. I can only imagine how often Parisian dads scare their children into good behavior by threatening to lock them up in the Bastille if they didn't eat their bread. The Bastille's reputation is mostly due to the fact that, over the years, it held a lot of writers who saw a good opportunity. As one prisoner put it, I saw literary glory illuminate the walls of my prison. Once persecuted, I would be better known, and those six months of the Bastille would be an excellent recommendation and infallibly make my fortune. Those same writers usually had cells that contained curtains, tables, chairs, chimneys, even their own dogs and cats from home. The Bastille's most famous prisoner is probably that weirdo, the Marquis de Sade, 
who was only able to survive the nightmarish fever dream of prison thanks to his silk stockings, four family portraits, perfumes, 133 books, and a bunch of squashy mattresses. Recently, the Marquis had leaned out his cell window to tell the crowds below that the guards were killing everybody. But please remember that the Marquis de Sade was the most notorious troll of 18th century France. But the crowd was ready to believe anything of its dastardly king by this point. A king who had dismissed the man of the people, a king who was clearly starving the people on purpose, a king who was getting ready to unleash a horde of German soldiers to murder innocent Parisians. Yeah, why not a king who would lock up everyone in a prison and then murder them where no one could see? So this brings us here, to the morning of July 14, 1789. It's been 48 hours since the nervous bakers set out their bread, and almost six years to the day since the Icelandic volcano erupted and ruined the world's food supply. The governor of the Bastille woke up nervous. He knew he had already been abandoned by his fellow authorities. Those German soldiers were getting the heck out of town. And the other military leaders in Paris had sent him their gunpowder and weapons, but no soldiers to guard any of it. Meanwhile, waiting outside the gates, were nearly a thousand angry Parisians. Because nothing in Paris happens the way you'd expect, the storming of the Bastille actually began with a very civilized breakfast. When two members of the crowd demanded to go inside the Bastille, the governor welcomed them inside for breakfast, he gave them a tour of the place, and said that while he wouldn't be able to let the militia move in and take away his guns, he would put all of the fortress's weapons away. This very polite negotiation went on for hours, but, you know, at least two Parisians got some bread out of the whole ordeal. Eventually, as the restless crowd of Parisians pressed closer together in front of the gates, someone managed to shimmy up the outer wall and cut the ropes to the drawbridge, accidentally squishing at least one unsuspecting member of the crowd. Once the drawbridge fell, that was it. The battle was on. As the mob poured into the inner courtyard, the Bastille guards opened fire. The governor of the Bastille was in no mood for a long, drawn-out fight. At most, he and his men had enough food to last a siege of about 48 hours. So his best bet was to negotiate an honorable, peaceful surrender. Well, those terms of surrender were flatly rejected, and the mob surged its way into the prison. They liberated all the Bastille's prisoners. All seven of them. Four of the prisoners were some run-of-the-mill forgers. One was a count, imprisoned by his own family for bad behavior. And the other two were just mentally ill at a bad time in history to be mentally ill. This liberation accomplished, the mob turned their energies towards the guards and staff. This wasn't really a good idea, because the citizens managed to lose 98 of their guys, while the governor lost only one. Well, that simply wouldn't do. All of a sudden, after a huge surge into a crowd of Bastille guards, the crowd managed to seize the governor of the Bastille, beat the crap out of him, and drag his bruised body down the streets towards the Hotel de Ville. For those of you who have been to Paris, 
That's a long way to be dragged. Naturally, the crowd spent the entire trip debating which hideous, grisly medieval form of torture they would use to kill the governor, with everyone debating back and forth which hideous suffering would be best. Keep in mind, this is the governor of a prison which lets his prisoners show up with family portraits and pillows. This is a governor who has very little control over who he guards. This is a man who is guarding seven people. I don't want to say that the governor of the Bastille was Mr. Rogers, but he wasn't exactly Joseph Mengele either. Finally, the governor ran out of time. A pastry chef standing nearby suggested bringing the governor inside, where God knows what torture would be performed. This was the last straw for the governor. He knew he was doomed, and he wasn't going to put off the inevitable any longer. At this point, the governor closed his eyes, gathered up the last of his feeble strength, shouted, let me die, and kicked the pastry chef right in the family jewels. Well, when you ask a mob of French revolutionaries to kill you, you don't have to ask them twice. The governor died, which was probably a relief to everybody at that point, including the governor. Now that the crowd's bloodlust was satisfied, everyone turned back the way they came, back to the Bastille, so that they would spend the entire night to come tearing down the hated old fortress by hand, stone by stone. It would never be rebuilt. That night, King Louis received word of the destruction of the Bastille from his longtime friend at court, the Duc de Lyoncourt. After weeks of skirmishes around the country, I wonder if maybe the news that mob violence had reached the capital took a moment to sink in. Because Louis heard about the storming of the Bastille and made ready to go to bed. Before turning in for the night, and I'm assuming, you know, wearing his pajamas, Louis is said to have turned to his friend the Duke and he asked, Is it a revolt? Quick to grasp their new reality, the Duke replied to the king, No, sire, it is not a revolt. It is a revolution. Paris never forgot the bread riots. Those angry mobs which had surged through the countryside, through every city, through Paris itself, kicked off a revolution that wouldn't end until Napoleon stepped in. After leaving the marketplace, only to end up tearing down the Bastille itself, Parisians channeled their rage at the injustice and suffering they faced into an insane, bloody orgy of violence and anarchy. All this because the price of bread was too damn high. Throughout all the chaos of the 200 years following the summer of 1789, France seemed to learn one crucial lesson. Never take the bread away. But did they really learn this lesson? Anyone who's ever visited France in the summer, or simply tried to email anyone in France over the summer, knows that the entire country takes a vacation in August. Traditionally, there's been one big exception to this practice, the bakers. Throughout the 20th century, bakeries in each neighborhood were divided into one of two groups, either your group A and you get to close for July, or your group B and you get to close during August. This ensures that 
you know, come what may, the streets of Paris will never go without bread on a hot summer's day. Well, all good things come to an end. And in 2015, the mayor of Paris decided to scrap the old way and let Parisian bakers take their vacations whenever they pleased. For the first time in 200 years, Parisians could walk through their neighborhood without finding a single bakery open selling bread. It's too soon to see how things turn out, and things seem to be going well. But for how long? Sure, it's 2016, and it seems pretty unthinkable that anything could disrupt something as critical as the food supply to France. But it seemed pretty unthinkable in 1789, too. Meanwhile, in New Zealand, Alaska, Guatemala, Oregon, reports come in all the time of rumblings and grumblings from the earth, smoke pouring out of mountains, volcanoes getting ready to come to life once more. that's our show for today. Thank you so much for checking out my premiere episode, and I hope you'll join me again in two weeks when I'll be exploring the history of that edible oddity, the escargot. In the meantime, if you enjoyed today's show, please like this page on Facebook or visit my website at www.thelandofdesire.com. See you in two weeks. Au revoir.